0: Okay, let's stop there for a second. Let's just set the scene. Um, So Jesus has burst onto the scene um, in Matthew chapter 4. He's announced the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the good news. Um, And now he's gone up a mountainside. It's probably helpful for you to know that Matthew's gospel has five big teaching blocks in it. It's a very structured gospel. It's not random. It's very structured. And you can spot them because every time it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, that tells you that Matthew's finished one of his blocks of teaching. The Sermon on the Mount is the first block of teaching in Matthew's Gospel. Five blocks of teaching. Probably not insignificant that there are five major books in the Old Testament Torah, the first five books of the Bible, revered as the books of Moses. Moses, who went up on a mountainside to receive God's word. I don't think these things are an accident. I think what we're supposed to see is that here is the one who's greater than Moses, who is now going to declare the new law, the law of the kingdom. This is what we're going to see. One cool little detail, though, is that when Moses went up the mountain, I don't know if you know this, but the people had to stay at the bottom. The people were told, don't go up the mountain. Only Moses could go up. But look what we just read. Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. So there's going to be something in this kingdom which is beyond and above what we've experienced in Moses, right? Here's the king who now says, now you can come up the mountain. You don't now have to stand at a distance. Now there is access into the very heart of the kingdom. Oh, it's beautiful. We need to keep going. Let's read. Right, verse, let's get to the Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of the evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean They're stunning words. I mean, even just reading them, you're like, there's something about these words. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you're here for the first time, you've never really heard about Jesus before, there's still something in the beauty of the words that Jesus is expressing here that make us go, that's nice, right? It's nice. But if all we see is some nice words and some nice sentiments, we've completely missed the point. I have to say, people do disagree about the Beatitudes and how we're supposed to interpret them. There's all sorts of opinions. I've read all sorts of books and I've had all sorts of thoughts. And some people would say, some people sort of turn the Beatitudes into commands to be obeyed. You must be poor in spirit. You must be someone who mourns. You must be meek. In other words, they say, in order to be part of this kingdom, you need to keep these commands. I don't think that's a helpful way to understand how the Beatitudes work. There's another group who say, no, they're not commands to be obeyed. They're descriptions of certain types of people. So in our world, there are some people who are just downtrodden. You know, there are some people whose lives are just really hard. There are some people who really ache and, and, and really suffer and really struggle. And Jesus comes and he announces a blessing on those sorts of people. He says, blessed are you, blessed are you. And so these aren't general principles for the whole of the kingdom. These aren't sort of things that we should, you know, who wants to aspire to mourn? That sounds a bit weird. And so we don't aspire to mourn, this view says. It says, no, no, it's just if you are mourning, then blessed are you. Again, I'm not sure that's the way that these should be read. I don't think they're commands. I don't think they're descriptions. Let me try and suggest a way that I hope will be helpful for us. And that is that what Jesus is talking about is a revolution. The revolution has begun. These are not nice sentiments that Jesus says, oh, here's some nice thoughts. What Jesus is saying is that something so monumental has happened and these beatitudes express the heart of it. Um, there's, a, there's a book by a guy called um, Yuval Noah Harari called uh, Sapiens. It's the brief history of mankind. And he uses the idea of revolution to, to tell the story of humanity. He talks about three revolutions. Firstly, the cognitive revolution where humanity sort of began to think consciously and clearly. He's not a Christian. Then he comes to... Um, the agricultural revolution, where rather than being hunter-gatherers, we started sowing seeds and, you know, wheat and stuff and things. And then the scientific revolution, when we began to learn how to use and harness the power of science to, to advance. It's an interesting way to kind of view our world. But I think he misses the biggest revolution of all. But it's not surprising he misses it because the revolution that Jesus is talking about is a revolution that happens quietly and yet spectacularly. I do think we overuse the word revolution though. You know, sometimes people say, I got an air fryer and it's revolutionized my life. No, it, ha- it really hasn't. Okay. Yes, you can now. Cook a nicely browned chicken breast in eight minutes. I get it. That's a helpful thing. It's not revolutionized your life. It's not transformed everything. So let's, let's dial down the revolution language. But when Jesus comes, I think we need to dial it up. You see, I think that our danger is that because we're used to the air fryer definition of revolution, that what we do is we say, oh, Jesus has revolutionized my life, and actually he hasn't. He hasn't revolution. Perhaps you started to follow him and you say, oh, I like Jesus, I think he's nice, and oh, he's forgiven my sin and he's given me this. But he's revolutionized your life like an air fryer revolutionizes your cooking. And Jesus wants us to see in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about revolution, he's talking about something so monumental that this is not some little tweak that I've made to my life. This is a complete transformation. And my prayer this term and maybe into next year is that Jesus would do that revolution in us. He's begun it in many of us, but he'd continue it and help us to see. Now, why do I talk about a revolution? Well, because back in chapter 4, verse 17, if you've got Matthew open in front of you, here is how Jesus announces... The first thing he says publicly, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That is a revolutionary statement, all right? If you walk into somewhere and say, a new kingdom has arrived, what you are declaring is a revolution. Jesus, I I, I want to say this carefully, but... Christmas, when Jesus was born, was an act of war. When heaven invaded earth. When the kingdom of heaven came into the kingdom of this world. And what Jesus is coming to bring is a complete revolution. Really, the Bible is the story of two revolutions. The first revolution happens in Genesis 3 when God has made a beautiful world. And interestingly, when God made his world, one of the words he loved, one of the the words that God really loved was blessed. The world that God made was a blessed world. So when God made human beings, he blessed them. Isn't that a great word? Not entirely sure what it means, but it sounds good, right? Blessed. And then there was a Sabbath day, and God blessed the Sabbath day. He said, "This day is the best day. This is the day when you're to enjoy rest with Me. This is the day when you're to enjoy a relationship with Me. This is when you enjoy all the good things that you were created for. Blessed, blessed. It's the best life. It's the sweet spot of life. That was the kingdom of heaven on earth when God created. But humanity." revolted, revoluted, did a revolution, where they said, we don't want you to be king. We'll establish a new kingdom. We'll call it the kingdom of earth. And rather than it being a kingdom of freedom, it became a kingdom of slavery. And rather than it being a kingdom of blessed, it became a kingdom of cursed, cursed to you. And so all of the blessings and the joy of the kingdom of heaven and the freedom and the fruit and the beauty was replaced with sadness and sorrow and death and suffering because humanity had turned away from Creator. Now you've got two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. And there was this great divide between them. And yet God promised, God promised that a day was coming, a king was coming, a kingdom was coming. Someone would come who would establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. Someone who would repair the break. You can hear it whispered through the pages of the Old Testament. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Someone's coming and he will rule a kingdom of righteousness and peace and beauty. Someone's coming. Who's it going to be? And the pages of the Bible go by and history unfolds until eventually by the lake of Galilee, Jesus says, it's now. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Do you see what a monumental thing this is? Into this kingdom of the world, the kingdom of heaven has come. It's a revolution. And Jesus says, therefore, repent Repent means to turn from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of heaven. Join this new kingdom, this new reality that Jesus has brought. So here's my summary, if we just have the next slide. Jesus has established the blessed kingdom of heaven on earth. That's what he came to do. Heaven on earth. I'm resisting Belinda Carlisle. She sang a song about this. Ooh, baby, do you know what it's worth? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. She was so almost right. In fact, she was right in an extraordinary way, just not in the way she thought. Anyway, heaven come down. Heaven on earth. And people have started to follow Jesus. Jesus has said, come follow me. Come be part of my kingdom. Come be one of my apprentices, one of my disciples, and so people have been following him, and now Jesus goes up on a mountainside, and those who've started to follow him, those who are interested, those who want to be part of this kingdom, come near to him, and Jesus starts the Beatitudes. And says, okay, let me explain to you what this revolution is all about. Let me explain to you the values of this kingdom. These are not commands about how to enter the kingdom. Neither are these descriptions of some groups of people. These are the values that underpin the very kingdom Jesus has come to bring. And look at the very first word he says. Blessed. Blessed, 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 blessed. That's what life in the kingdom of heaven is all about. Well, where have we heard that before? You see, this word blessed... We already know now, because we've done a little bit of work, that this is a word with history. It's not a new word that Jesus comes up with. This word has been around for years. It's not like chillax, right? Chillax is a new word. It has no real meaning. It's a rubbish, stupid thing that we should all ignore. But blessed is a word that has history, right? Blessed is a word that has content and weight, and Jesus, as he uses this word blessed, is importing all of that history into this moment, and he says, you know what we lost when God created, when God made us for this beautiful world where we had peace and freedom and joy and justice and all that was ours, yeah, that, blessed. Some people translate it happy. It's not a particularly helpful way to describe it, but it has got that sense of joy, celebration. Wow. It's a word that makes you smile. Blast. Hard to say with a frown. And why? Well, look at these Beatitudes. This is a, as, as Jesus teaches, this is not a new form, right? These are all over the place in the Old Testament. You get these blasts. It's the one who does not walk in the council of the wicked, but standing in the way of sinners, but sitting in the sin and mockers. That's Psalm 1, blessed, blessed. You get these all over the place in the Old Testament. So Jesus takes this old form and he says, now let me import it with all the kingdom weight that he's come to bring. And all of these work the same. Blessed are a certain group because of something, right? That's how they all work. Now, we'll look at the first bits in a second, but I think often we ignore the second bits of these. We go, oh, let's talk about being poor in spirit. Let's talk about being meek. Hang on. No, let's talk about the second bit of each one. Because you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like? Well, this is what it is. In verse 3, bless the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, this is bang on what we're talking about. Now, right now, in the present... The kingdom of heaven has come, and you can enjoy it. Well, what does that feel like? Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So the kingdom of heaven is a place of perfect comfort. It's also a place where you inherit the earth. You ever been stressed about kind of your, what you're going to inherit? You know, how much money you're going to have, all that stuff. Jesus says it. You inherit the earth in the kingdom of heaven because heaven has come to earth, and now the earth is going to become part of God's God's people's inheritance. Verse six: Bless those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Don't you long to be filled? To be so deeply satisfied that you're not left thinking, Am I doing this right? Am I missing out? What's going on? But to know a deep sense of filling. Verse 7, you'll be shown mercy. Verse 8, you'll see God. Verse 9, you'll be called children of God. I mean, that's good, right? Surely we're sitting here saying that. That's what I want. That's what it means to be blessed. That's the blessed life. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so here is this great blessedness. But then things take a funny turn. Because as you read these Beatitudes, and now we're going to get into a bit more of the detail, I hope you can see, here's the revolution, here's the blessing that Jesus is promising, here's the great promise, the the return back to what we've lost. But the values are not what we'd expect. And so let's now unpick in a bit more detail these values, and we're going to see why The promises of these Beatitudes are mostly future tense. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. This is not a promise that you will now inherit the earth. You are now in the kingdom of heaven, but there is a future to it. So we've got to be careful as we go through this. Um, If you were going to start a revolution, uh, what would you do? What What would be your first move? Here you are, you want to start a world revolution. I wonder what you'd do. I'm gonna suggest three steps to to, to starting a revolution, if you ever fancy it. Step one, you need people to catch the vision. Step two, you'll need to overcome some resistance. There's always resistance to revolutions. And then step three, you'll need to prepare for action. I'm gonna take those headings and show you what that does as we look at the attitudes. All right? Stick with it. It's going, to be, it's going to be good. It's going to be fun. Right. Firstly, we need to catch the vision. What is the vision that Jesus is setting out in these Beatitudes that he is saying, this is my kingdom? What are the values that he wants you to embrace? What is it that he wants you to say, no, I don't want the world anymore. I want this. This is better. This is more beautiful. It seems to me a revolution must provide and offer something better than what you currently have. Even an air fryer knows that. If the air fryer is not better than your normal way of cooking, it will never catch on. And so what Jesus is speaking of here is a vision of life, a vision of being human that is better than anything else you will ever find. I went to see Barbie on Friday, a bit late to the party, not going to say anything about it, just saying It's better than Barbie. Jesus' vision of life is better than Barbie. Which isn't setting the bar high, I know. But, would honestly, I'll do a whole thing on Barbie another time. Not now, all right? Don't get me started on that now. So, here is the vision Jesus sets out. And I wonder if you can catch this vision. I wonder if you can see there's something beautiful here. And so I'm going to very quickly run through these Beatitudes. And what I want to show you is that first and foremost, they describe Jesus. They describe Jesus. Which makes sense because he's the king of the kingdom, right? And so what we have in Jesus is the perfect embodiment of the values of the kingdom. What does the kingdom look like? Well, the kingdom looks like the king, Right? You see, Jesus came, and he was poor in spirit. Jesus did not come to be born in high status or privilege. Jesus did not have wealth and influence. No, Jesus was born in poverty. Jesus never owned anything. Jesus never got a formal qualification. Jesus had nothing. He was low. He was poor in spirit. He came so low, even even to the point of being stripped naked and hung on a cross. I don't know how you show a greater poverty in spirit than that. Jesus was not interested in self-promotion and self-elevation. He was interested in humbling himself to the lowest place. And he says, that's the kingdom. That's the values of the kingdom. That's what I want you to understand. That's the vision I want you to catch. You see, the world has a very different vision, but the vision of the kingdom is poor in spirit, not full of ourselves, but instead empty. And Jesus came into this world and he mourned. He did not wrap himself up in cotton wool and protect himself from the pain. Have you ever done that thing where someone gives you an egg and then says you have to protect it and then you're going to drop it from a ladder? Have you done that? You should, all of you, tonight. Um, Because it will help you to understand what Jesus didn't come to do. So, because Jesus... He is the eternal son of God. He's magnificent. He is eternally in heaven in a place of utter safety and beauty. And yet Jesus came into this world, but he didn't come wrapped up and protected. Instead, he felt the raw brokenness and the pain and the horror of this world. He wept at his best friend's grave. He knew what it was to suffer. He's experienced this world. He's mourned. And to be part of this kingdom means you open your eyes to the reality of this world. You open your eyes to see that things are not right. Not right within me. Not right within this world. Mourning. He was meek. He was... M- meek does not mean that you're weaky weaky Meek... Meek means that you you give everything up to serve others. Meek is the person who steps back to the back of the queue to allow others to go in front. Meek is the person who does not push themselves forward but pushes others forward and takes a step back. That's Jesus all the time. All the time. Jesus, who hungered and thirsted for righteousness, whose very food, he said, was to do the work of his father, who said, I just want to do what's right. I give my whole life to pursuing one cause. One of the things I love most about Jesus is that there is nothing in his life that you could ever point to and say, that was unfair. That was unjust. You treated that person wrongly. Perfect righteousness. Jesus, this hunger to do the right thing. A hunger again that led him to the cross. Jesus, who showed mercy. Mercy means pity, it means compassion. As he walked along the street, he didn't shut his eyes to the suffering of the people in front of him, but he stopped and he stooped down and he poured himself out for those who were in desperate need. He was pure in heart. A man of absolute integrity, whose purity went right to the middle. Not just an outward, oh, look, isn't he nice? But every thought, every deed, every act of our King Jesus was pure. Totally pure. A peacemaker. Who came into this world to restore what was broken. To take God and humanity and to make peace at the very cost of his life. And was he persecuted because of righteousness? (laughs) Yeah. He suffered even death on a cross. And you see, the thing is that Jesus embodies the values of this kingdom because he's the king. Jesus shows us what this kingdom looks like. And he says, you want to be a disciple of mine? Come follow me. Come be my apprentice. In this life, this is revolution, right? because what Jesus is saying is the way we're going to turn the world upside down the way we're going to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth is not by taking up arms and fighting but by laying them down and dying that's how we're going to take that's how we're going to change the world that's the revolution Jesus has in mind can you get on board with that vision can you catch the vision of a kingdom that is so beautiful serves rather than seeks to be served. But if this vision is going to be established, if this revolution is going to take root in our hearts, we will secondly have to overcome some resistance, right? Because by nature, our hearts resist revolution. Every heart does. There's always, when when a new revolution comes along, there's always some people who resist it, aren't there? Air fryers, no, they're, 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 they're terrible. They'll uh, set your house on fire and, you, and then your cat will die. Don't get an air fryer. There's always people who resist. I don't want an air fryer. I don't want it. There's always people who... I, I, some of you know at the moment, I'm driving a car which isn't mine. Um, it's a higher car because our car got crashed into. Anyway, it's a much nicer car than I'd normally drive. And it's got this weird thing where if I try and change lane on the motorway, um, and I ha- I'm not indicating, which I know is bad, but if, you know, sometimes... It, it resists it. It doesn't let me, right? It, I have to force go, no, we are changing lane. It sort of tries to push me back. It's like, you've clearly lost control of the car. I'm taking over. I'm like, no, get off. And actually, what I find in my heart is exactly the same. As I hear the values of the kingdom, I feel something in my heart resisting and going, no, no, I don't want that. This value of being poor in spirit We're constantly being told, no, 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 you need to be impressive. Pursue status. It's about self-confidence. It's about self-esteem. It's about being enough. It's about, sorry, it's about all this stuff, right? It's so hard for us. If you try and move down, it's so hard because there's something in you that resists. And mourning. We find ourselves resisting the kind of really embracing and mourning with the world. I am much, much more likely to try and medicate my sorrow and pain rather than really feel it. I'm much more likely to try and be like the egg wrapped up in a box that says, I don't don't want to think about it. And so I hear about 2,000 people who've been killed in an earthquake in Morocco and I just can't process that. And so rather than mourn, rather than fall on my knees and beg God, my father, that his kingdom would come, I switch over, I turn it off, I scroll past it. Because there's something in me resisted. Meekness? Whoever wants to be meek? We resist it. We want to push forward. We, we, we want to make sure we get our, our rights. You get the idea. We, we resist at every point. We hunger and thirst for success. We want what will bring us ease and comfort. That's what we hunger and thirst for. We don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. We resist it. We find it hard to be merciful because it will cost me. Mercy always costs the idea of being pure in heart, the idea that I might have to cut some things out in order to keep them away. You know, if you're going to have pure orange juice, you've got to keep the unpure bits out. I resist that. When someone's wronged me, man, I resist saying so, going and making up. It's not my fault they did it. And I very much resist being persecuted. I don't want people to not like me. I want to be liked. I want an easy life. And all the time, the kind of internal heart is nudging us back into our lane. No, don't go that way. And what we end up with is a fake revolution where we sort of put on an act of revolution, but there's no we haven't changed lanes. We're still in the same lane. Because the revolution Jesus is calling us to is way bigger. Which is why, thirdly, and we're nearly there, thank you so much for sticking with it in this hot weather. Thirdly, these are a call, I think, to prepare for action. To say to Jesus, Jesus, I really, I I, I want to be in this. I, I, I struggle, I find it so hard to live this way, Jesus, but I want to. The whole reason Jesus had to come, right? Was because we struggle and we fail, and Jesus came and He died for all your failures. He died for all of that. Jesus at the cross was cursed, Kingdom of the World, so that you might be blessed. Right, that's the big story of what's going on here. But now, as we read these command, uh, these not commands, listen to yourself. As we read these beatitudes, you begin to find them, preparing your heart for action. Saying, Jesus, yeah, I I want to be transformed. I don't want to live a fake revolution, an air fry revolution. I want to be completely transformed. I want to be turned around. And that's costly. And that really is why I think these set up the Sermon on the Mount. You see, most of what Jesus is going to say, and he's got lots of commands for us. There's lots of things he's going to say. I want you to obey this. I want you to do this. But they flow from these values. Like all of the commands of the Sermon on the Mount find their roots in first, in these values. You you embrace these values. You understand that this is what the kingdom of heaven is about. This is what it looks like. And then you're prepared to obey. But you've got to embrace the command. You've got to embrace the vision. You've got to embrace the values of this kingdom. Let me say as we wrap up, this kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus has come. The king has lived this kingdom life in this world. And now he calls us to follow him. He says, are you going to get on board? Think what an impact lives like this would have in our city. Think what an impact people who lived this set of values would have in in your street, in your family, in your workplace. Think what an impact. That's what Jesus is longing for. Our job on earth is that the kingdom of heaven might be established here on earth as we live out that kingdom, as we do justice and we do good and we love people and we shine the light of this kingdom to this world. But the way you do it is by embracing these values. So I hope you're excited. And I hope you're a little bit daunted too. Because reality is, if we live this life, it will be hard. Which is why Jesus, I think, spends most time on that last beatitude. Let me finish with this, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Reality is we might like to think, oh, if we live this life, everyone's going to love us. No, actually, if we live this life, people will persecute us because they persecuted Jesus. And yet this is the kingdom. This is the blessed kingdom that Jesus has established on earth. This is the kingdom we get the privilege to be part of. We're going to spend the next however months, many months just exploring, enjoying, and seeking to live out this kingdom together. Just imagine what Jesus might do if this kingdom took hold in our hearts and drove us out into this city. Why don't we pray? Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Just take a moment. um, We're going to have some time to... To respond and saying, and we we can share communion together. Here's something I really want to encourage you to think through as we do communion, as we share the Lord's supper: is to think to yourself, where do you find your heart resisting this afternoon? Where particularly? Which of those values do you find particularly hard? And actually, to say, to be honest with Jesus about that, and ask Him to help you, ask that He would help you to embrace these values of the kingdom. But let me lead us in prayer and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, thank you that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Thank you that these values are perfectly seen in Jesus, our King. And thank you that he now calls us to walk in these ways. Lord, the promises that you give are stunning. We will be comforted. We will inherit the earth. We will be filled. We will be shown mercy. We will see God. We will be called children of God. Because that's the reality of the kingdom. And Lord, we long to taste that now, but we long for the day when we will taste it fully. So Father, please teach us this term. Would you do a revolution in us, a deep, deep work that transforms our lives, that would then transform this world as the kingdom of heaven comes near. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.